Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This is, of course, a week of traveling for a lot of people, or at least trying to travel and having your plans interrupted by weather and flight cancellations. So in honor of that, we have put together some of our favorite articles about transportation. So if you're stranded in an airport right now listening to this, my deepest condolences, and hopefully this will make things just a little bit brighter for you. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. link. The BBC is pleased to report that a whale sculpture catches crashed Dutch metro train. Oh, man, (laughs) I saw pictures of this. It's crazy. Yeah, the pictures are definitely worth checking out. It's astonishing. And the timing of it just felt so symbolic and metaphorical for (laughs) the election that we here in the United States have been going through as well. But a train driver in the Netherlands had a very lucky escape because of a fortuitously placed art installation. So don't you ever say that art doesn't save lives. That's right. (laughs) Government funding should be giving us all the beautiful art sculptures. (laughs) That's right. It was a metro train near the city of Rotterdam, and it crashed through a barrier at the end of the tracks shortly before midnight on a Sunday. But instead of plummeting 10 meters or 32 feet into the water below, the train was left suspended dramatically in the air. I mean, this is such a trope when it comes to like superhero movies and things like that. We see it in Spider-Man. Right. The dangling vehicle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. But because of the placement of the sculpture, the train ended up being delicately balanced on the large sculpture of a whale's tail at the metro station. (laughs) So at this point, they're trying to decide how they can bring the train down in a careful and controlled manner. Uh, The driver, who has not been named, was asked, (laughs) he was able to leave the empty train by himself. He did not have any injuries when he was taken to the hospital for a checkup. And the sculpture, which is titled Whale Tales, is the work of an architect and artist. So that architecture may have kind of come into play in terms of these life-saving qualities. That's true. I mean, it had to be pretty strong to hold up the weight of a train. Yeah, That's true. But Martin Struis, the person who created this, said he was surprised the structure did not break. Quote, it has been there for almost 20 years, and you would actually expect the plastic to pulverize a (gasps) bit, but that is not apparently the case. I kind of feel like they should leave the train there like it's not, it's part of the art installation now right like it's it's yeah. performance art on the highest scale <laughs> well they may have to fortify the whale's tail maybe add a couple of extra <laughs> but you know i i think that that proposal's got legs unlike the whale which doesn't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next link next link all right well this next one comes from wired it's called where are those shoes you ordered check the ocean floor Oh. oh, no. <laughs> I thought you were going to say check the Suez Canal. but Oh, yeah, that's too, true. Yeah. <laughs> that happened in between when this article was published and today. Yeah. <laughs> As you may or may not be aware, I'm sure the Suez Canal is very aware right now, overseas shipping has increased dramatically during the pandemic. While some of this is new demand for products like masks, most of it is the same consumer goods we were purchasing before, just more of them. Mm-hmm. Specifically, U.S. imports by container ship have been up about 30 percent compared to 2019. And that number has not shown any sign of going back to normal yet. 
But the striking thing that this article focuses on is the fact that the number of lost shipping containers has skyrocketed far more than the 30 percent you might imagine. So even the expected numbers here are truly mind-blowing. A standard shipping container is 8 feet high, 8 feet wide, and 20 feet long. And a full container ship will hold about 24,000 of these. Ooh. They're stacked five or six high, and they're spread out as long as four football fields. Wow. In a normal year, around 1,400 of these containers will be lost at sea, usually due to bad weather. So if we do the math, that's around 1.7 million cubic feet of consumer goods drop to the bottom of the ocean every year. Wow. Yeah. And like I said, this past year has been far worse than anyone could have guessed. In just the last five months, we've lost more than twice the annual number of shipping containers, a total of 2,980 containers in six separate incidents. These included products from Ikea, Williams-Sonoma, Adidas, Puma, Hasbro, and lots more. So the article has a couple of reasons why we're losing so many. First off, like we said, the increased traffic of the pandemic means there's more ships out there to lose. But Mm -hmm. the pandemic has also led to a shortage of the shipping containers themselves. They still have enough overall, but they've had some trouble getting the empty containers back to their country of origin fast enough to load them up again. So companies have resorted to using older containers, which are more likely to have damaged or corroded locking and latching mechanisms. In addition, of course, the workers are stretched thin with both the added cargo and a certain number being out sick at any given time. So they're probably not able to pack and secure the containers as well as they could if they were well-rested. But on top of all that, it's been a bad year for weather at sea. And what's more, ships that are overloaded are more likely to experience something called parametric rolling. Hmm. This is a phenomenon that happens when the time between two waves happens to line up exactly with the natural rolling motion of the ship And you get a sort of double bounce effect like on a trampoline. Mm -hmm. When this happens, the ship can suddenly tilt as much as 40 degrees to one side. Ooh, holy crap. And of course, the higher the containers are stacked, the more likely it is that some are going to fall off. Because they are secured, but we're talking about rotational physics here, where the top Mm -hmm. of the ship is like the outer rim of a wheel. So it's going to accelerate a lot faster than the containers closer to the center. And right Mm -hmm. now, we honestly don't even have a way of securing something that heavy moving that fast. That's not to say it's not possible, but redesigning the ships and training the crew on how to interrupt the ship's rolling motion, of course, takes time and money. Mm -hmm. And up until now, the amount of merchandise lost each year was basically the cheaper choice. Mm -hmm. But given what we've seen this year, the International Maritime Organization, which is in charge of creating seaworthiness standards for all countries, has been considering the issue. Mm. Yeah, I mean, everyone's losing a huge amount of money. The only kind of comfort we can get during lockdown is whatever retail therapy those who can't afford it can. That's right. If my shoes aren't coming, I'm mad. Fix the oceans. Like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Well, and there's even more money at play. Michael Hurd, the director of the Cargo Casualty Department at a marine insurance company, noted that some of this year's cases will likely lead to lawsuits. He declined (laughs) to comment further, but... (laughs) (laughs) They're already in the works. That's right. When there's liability involved, all of a sudden people start caring about security measures. Yep. And in the meantime, a spokesman for one of the affected companies said, if anybody has investments in deep sea salvage, there's some beautiful product down there. (laughs) 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 Next link. Next link. Well, Gizmodo is telling us that NASA's nearly indestructible airless 
titanium tires might soon be available for your bicycle. Ooh. Whoa. Like, right? Are these like on the rovers, like on Mars, and they can be on our bikes? Yep. <laughs> so, um, for example, the lunar rover, which Apollo 15 brought to the moon, wheels made of hollow metal springs were created so they could absorb bumps to make the ride more comfortable for astronauts. The problem was most metals lose their shape over time and they become brittle when they're repeatedly flexed, which results in misshapen wheels that just don't roll as well and sometimes even worse, create severe damage that prevents them from rolling at all. So they needed to kind of have a optimization layer applied to this, right? Mm -hmm. So as an alternative, they have spent several million dollars over the past seven years developing something called nitinol. Hmm. It's a metal alloy that's made out of nickel and titanium that behaves a little differently. So metal springs will eventually lose their ability to spring back to their original shape because the bonds between their atomic structures become so stretched they're no longer able to return to their initial arrangements. But nitinol features a more ordered atomic structure and exhibits something known as the shape memory effect, which allows it to be deformed, but returned to its original manufactured shape again and again without the possibility of a flat tire occurring. It's incredible technology that will soon be available in the coming years for a vehicle that will probably never leave Earth's atmosphere. Your bike. <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, you know, who knows? Elon Musk may have something to say about that, but he has something to say about everything. So. Yeah, if he, <clears throat> he shot yeah. a car, he can shoot a bike. Why not? Uh, anyway, <laughs> a startup called the Smart Tire Company has announced that it's creating a metal bicycle tire using NASA's nitinol alloy that will probably survive a lot longer than the bike itself. Hmm. They're calling it the METAL, which stands for Martensite Elastized Tubular Loading Tire. <laughs> <laughs> and the creators are hopeful it will be available as an alternative to premium bike tire options as early as 2022. Hmm. Optimistic. But it does remain to be seen just how much a titanium alloy bike tire will cost. <laughs> but for cyclists who are serious and are happy to spend tens of thousands of dollars on their bikes, which they are there, yeah, they, they exist. exist. These tires could be the last set they'll ever have to buy. You know, they'll still require regular maintenance, but quite the selling point. These tires are not also going to be suitable for every rider because, you know, they're made of metal. And so they're going to be heavier than premium lightweight tires used by professional cyclists and athletes. But right. for other applications, like people who like doing off-road mountain biking, which, you know, those tires are already chunkier and heavier, mm -hmm. the tires won't feel that much different. Well, and the last thing you want if you're out in the middle of the woods mountain biking is to pop a tire and then exactly. you can't get any, you know, you're not carrying a spare on your back. So that seems exactly. like the ideal application right there. Obviously, NASA felt it was important enough to spend millions of dollars on its development. Yeah, so. I feel like this is going to give rise to a whole new wave of bike jacking crimes. Like when the oh. bike is that expensive, you don't even have to steal. Yeah. No one is going to lock this thing up outside at the bike rack. But yeah. you could basically just force somebody off their very expensive bike and ride away with it and get yourself a $20,000 or whatever prize. I mean, it, it, Darn. I don't know. I'd be afraid to ride one around myself. <laughs> Well, you've got some time to come to terms with that That's or find true. your peace or who knows what kind of anti-theft technology they may build into it by That's then. That's true. Maybe it'll have like like one of those collar matching things where like they need your RFID to operate. So you, yep. yeah, just spitballing here. Feel free to call me. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer is available for consultation. That's right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from BBC. 
and it is by Sarah Trainer and Katie Prescott, and it's called Finding the Invisible Millions Who Are Not on Maps. Hmm. So this is a series of interviews with various people who are involved in essentially mapping unmapped areas. So Ivan Gayton from the charity Humanitarian Open Street Map, which is kind of like a Wikipedia for maps that anybody can download and edit, says hmm. there are about 2 billion people in the world who don't appear on a proper map. Wow. Which, yeah, that's, that's a lot of people. Yeah. That's a like, huge that's number. 20% practically. And he says, it's shameful that we as cartographers of the world don't take enough interest to even know where they are. People are living and dying without appearing on any database. According to Mr. Gaiden, it's the most complete and accurate map for many parts of the world, his project OpenStreetMap, especially in rural Africa, where underinvestment means outside of cities, there are often blank pages where millions of people live. It's an amazing situation where anyone could wreck OpenStreetMap, anyone can add to it, but what they end up with, much like Wikipedia, is a map that is the most up-to-date in certain places. So the question is, you know, why does it matter so much? But Mr. Gaiden says it can actually be a matter of life and death. Like, if you take an outbreak of disease like Ebola or the new coronavirus, contact tracing is how you stop epidemics. Mm -hmm. It's not the treatment, it's the public health and map data that makes it possible. Mm. So he actually worked on mapping efforts during the West Africa Ebola outbreak in 2014 and 15 and found that a lack of data caused critical problems in locating disease hotspots because, you know, if you don't have a map of the area, how can you map the problem? Sure, how can you even find uh, the city where the outbreak's happening if it's not yeah. on the map? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. The big technology firms have invested huge amounts into their mapping efforts, but Ivan Gaiden says that there's a clear gulf in terms of priority. He says mm. there isn't much commercial incentive for Google to identify the nearest Starbucks in the Democratic Republic of Congo. <laughs> right. <laughs> And maps are the building blocks of economic development. Without accurate maps, it's not just that navigating from A to B can be difficult. It's also the essential tasks of proper planning for housing and infrastructure can be next to impossible. Mm -hmm. mm. Right, because well, you, you don't know where to put a hospital if you don't even know where the people are. Yeah, yeah but exactly. doesn't this kind of, I mean, this is sort of bringing up issues of like gentrifying old school style too, right? I mean, in order to do this and to have economic outposts or infrastructure, that seems like an imposition of whatever, I want to say Western, but it could be just whatever colonializing or imperial force wants to Right. Well, and I, I don't know. This seems tricky to me. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. I felt a little bit of a, a like a chest tightening when you said way that, you know, they've never even shown up in a database. And it's like, oh, well, that seems a little big brothery. Like, I don't know that they need to show yeah. up in a right. database. But when you start looking at this, the realities of like, OK, but if we don't have this information, at least on a larger citywide level, you end up yeah. with flooding and outbreaks and real human suffering that could have been avoided if there were a little more True. infrastructure in place. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when Ivan Gaiden says never shows up in a database, he's very much tech speaking. Right, right. <laughs> in that moment, uh, which, you know, at the same time, I am 100 percent in support of never showing up in a database. Right, but right. I would like to know the area I live in and the area around me and what exists. Mm -hmm. So I think like y'all are saying there's a very fine line here mm -hmm. in between you know aid and dystopia mm -hmm. <laughs> uh so one of those capitalizing speaking of capitalism on the need for mapping is tanzanian entrepreneur freddie maboya mining companies pay him to map their land using drones and this kind of detailed mapping needs to be done frequently often in areas that are hard to reach mm. so he says that global technology companies just don't have the incentive to map to a local scale in rural africa which mm -hmm. is time consuming and costly and Google and Apple Maps don't differentiate between a good road and a bad road, but that's mm. super important in those sorts of areas. Yeah. And he adds that land titling is also critical for development. 
He says, land is the key to fighting poverty. But how can we do this if we don't know where our land is? If the land isn't titled, we cannot leverage the value of our land. Most of my family land has been lost or is not being developed. We need land to be surveyed and formalized so we can go to the bank and get a loan with a piece of paper saying, I actually own this land. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And Scottish geographer Paul Georgie, who's the founder of a mapping company named GeoGeo, says that in today's society, not being on a map is akin to being invisible. Yeah. He worked on a project in Tanzania setting up energy grids in remote communities to do some of this work as well. Mm -hmm. And he said that we downloaded rough satellite images and took them into villages. Maps speak a universal language and people were actually able to label the pictures. Formalizing this, mapping it, and making it tangible gives people a larger voice around the world. Yeah, as long as I hope they don't get anyone like me in there because I'm terrible with directions. So, like, if you <laughs> if you put a map in front of me, I will give you bad data. Like, you don't want to ask me <laughs> where, where the nearest anything is. Super fair. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, ironically, as a result of having no maps, these people are probably way, way good at figuring out right, directions right, now. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. I'm sure part of the reason I'm not good at it is because now I have Google Maps and I'm like, I don't need to know how to drive to my grocery store. It can tell me, so I'm just going to zone out and not not ever learn yeah. you know, my surroundings. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we go back to Ivan Gaiden, who does acknowledge that the public health argument for comprehensive mapping doesn't convince everyone, unfortunately. Ultimately, he says it'll be an economic incentive that wins over the cynics. So, you know, capitalism wins again. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. He says the most compelling use case for the average person is to get a pizza or order a cab, which in comparison (laughs) to some of the other stuff sounds extremely mundane. But he says that my belief is that as the technology makes it possible for people not to have to spend half a day working out where the driver is, they will do it. People want to do business. So the implication from that seems to say that, you know, these businesses and economies are already trying to survive. They're just making it way harder and way harder for people to get jobs Mm -hmm. or to Mm -hmm. network or whatever else you need to do when you don't know where people are because there's literally no map to show you. Mm-hmm. Well, and I wonder how fast now, now that, like you said, smartphones are basically ubiquitous. I wonder how long it'll be before it is just fixed. Like you said, there's not a lot of incentive to save everybody from cholera. There's incentive to get everybody a delivered pizza. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I guess time will tell. Right. Uh, those satellites that Zuckerberg and Gates are launching will probably uh, <laughs> do a lot there. Right. right. Definitely not spell out global doom for anyone. That's right. They'll yeah. they'll help a little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At first. <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next link. All right, guys. Are you sick of dangerous city traffic, especially now that the world is kind of getting vaccinated and opening up and you're venturing outdoors again? I don't know, man. I live out in the suburbs. Like, it's all (laughs) there's no traffic here. (laughs) All right. Well, for our more, uh, I don't know, metro (laughs) citizens, the conversation has a pretty compelling article by an associate professor of civil engineering at Penn State named Vikash Gaya. And he's proposing that to make city traffic less dangerous, we should be removing left turns altogether. Oh, right. Mm. There's like an urban legend about how UPS did that, isn't there? It's not an urban legend. It's a fact. Oh, well, (laughs) good. Glad to know I'm informed and not just (laughs) making crap up. (laughs) No, you know what's going on. In 2004, UPS wanted to reduce travel times, fuel consumption, and carbon emissions. And so they changed their delivery routes to minimize the left-hand turns that drivers made. And it seems like a pretty modest change, but the results were anything but modest. UPS claims that per year, 
eliminating left turns, specifically the times drivers sit waiting to cut across traffic, Mm -hmm. saves 10 million gallons of fuel, 20,000 tons of carbon emissions, and allows them to deliver 350,000 additional packages. Wow. And this was just to reduce travel times, fuel consumption, and carbon emissions. Right. Again, it was money. That was all they wanted to do was save their company money. I mean, a lot of the progress we make in a capitalist Mm -hmm. society will typically come down to that. But Mm -hmm. because it worked so well for UPS, is this something cities should seek to eliminate too? And this author's research suggests that the answer is a resounding yes. And so Hmm. in a recent paper, they developed a way to determine which intersections should restrict left turns to improve traffic. Approximately 40% of all crashes occur at intersections, including 50% of crashes involving serious injuries. And this was a stat that made my eyes pop. Approximately 61% of all crashes that occur at intersections involve a left-hand turn. This Mm. is a known issue. So some cities have actually already started doing this. They haven't eliminated them, but they're limiting left turns to improve safety and traffic flow. San Francisco, Salt Lake City, Birmingham, Alabama, Wilmington, Delaware, Tucson, Arizona, and other places and cities in the U.S. and around the world all limit left turns in some way. But they're typically done at isolated locations to solve specific traffic and safety problems. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, there is a downside. If we were going to eliminate left turns altogether in this perfect world scenario, it would require some vehicles to travel longer distances. For example, you might have to take three consecutive right turns. But research this author published in 2012 using mathematical models and traffic simulations showed that eliminating left turns on grid-like street networks would on average require people to drive only one additional block. So this would be more than offset by just smoother traffic flow altogether. So I live about 15 minutes from downtown. I could see some immediate benefit. Jennifer, who's out in the suburbs, probably couldn't give a hoot. You know, it's fine. Well, (laughs) that's the thing is I was thinking about how, yeah, if you've got a grid street system, it works great. Mm -hmm. But like out where I am, you know, if you miss your intersection or whatever, you can go a full half mile down the road before you even have another opportunity. So if I were going to take three rights in a row, I'd be going half a mile too far. Then I'd be driving Mm -hmm. into some residential neighborhood where the streets aren't even straight and kind of winding my way back and then turning right to get back to the intersection. (laughs) And I also fully think that the types of really dangerous left turns are on those same roads because that road that I'm talking about is basically a highway. And you have people trying to left turn across traffic that's going 60, 70 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. So the most dangerous places are also probably the least able to accommodate it right now. But if you have a grid system, absolutely. Make it all one way. Make everybody walk. That's what I think. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, don't just get rid of left turns. Get rid of traffic. Yeah, man. Like like driving downtown, I try so hard to avoid it. And there's there's nowhere to park. Like you can drive to your location and be like, oh, there it was. Okay, now we're going to go find a parking garage somewhere a mile away. (laughs) I feel you and I agree. But yeah, that's the conclusion that the author came to in the busiest intersections Mm -hmm. that are mostly downtown where streets are laid out in a grid system. Let's just get rid of those left turns. We don't need them. Absolutely. Do it. Not going to affect me. So (laughs) I'm hiding from society out in the sticks. So (laughs) amen. (laughs) Next link. Next link. So this one comes from thehustle.co. It is called Meet the Company That Sells Your Lost Airplane Baggage. 
Oh and, no! Yeah. So I knew it. This is. I knew it. <laughs> did, have you lost a bag? Way is this a personal issue? Yes, I mean once, but also you hear so many stories. And where does that baggage end up going? It's mm-hmm. gotta be the know. highest bidder, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and apparently not because this guy has a monopoly, which is the really interesting thing. So this is they, they give us some stats. Four point three billion bags are checked every year. Of those, about twenty five million are lost every year. What? Um, now most of those do eventually find their owners, right? They're labeled. They just got it. They got on the wrong plane. They got to find them and send them back. Whatever. But. 1.2 million suitcases a year are never reunited with their owners. And Oof, they basically wow. go into warehouses. Every airline just kind of has a place where they shunt them over. And after 90 days, if no one has managed to come and find it and collect it, it is sold to this company, which is Unclaimed Baggage. Very original. And they are the nation's only retailer of lost luggage. Rude. So, yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, just because they have a monopoly on it, too. Like, I, I also dread to think of what, like, a competitive model of reselling people's right. lost stuff would look like. But right. So the company started in the early 1970s with Hugo Doyle Owens. He was an insurance salesman and a ham radio enthusiast, which... I want to say, like, kids, there was a time when we had radio, but ham radio goes back even farther. Like, that was AM. Like, that's old, old school. But a lot of people who used ham radio were truckers and bus drivers, people who were on the road Mm -hmm. a whole lot. So Owens heard, just through the chatter, he was sort of listening in on these channels, that a bus company in D.C. had this huge collection of unclaimed baggage that they were trying to figure out what to do with. So he just got a loan and he called them up and he offered them $300 for all of it, which today would be about $2,000. And he just put everything out on card tables with a little handmade sign, advertised it like a garage sale, and he sold out of everything in 24 hours. What? Wow. And he made a profit. So he's like, well, you know, this is kind of a cool little side thing I'll do on the weekends or whatever. He was still selling insurance. But at some point, he was getting so much in and spending so much time to it that his boss at the insurance company gave him an ultimatum and said, you're going to sell insurance, you're going to sell luggage. He said, well, I'm going to sell luggage because I'm making a lot more money doing that. (laughs) So he started kind of reaching out proactively to other companies, basically saying, hey, I'm sure you have this problem. I will take this stuff off your hands and you can recoup some of your cost, right? So by 1978, he had deals with three major airlines and he was buying 3,000 pieces of luggage every month. So this is clearly lost luggage is not a new problem. He passed away a few years ago, but his son runs the business now. It is thriving. It is basically a tourist destination. It's a 50,000 square foot warehouse outside of Scottsboro, Alabama. The population of Scottsboro is about 15,000 people, but this one business gets about a million customers per year. What? So, yeah, people in person. Yeah, people travel from all over because I mean it's that that idea of like you're going to find a deal, right? Because when they yeah. buy the luggage, they have no idea what's inside it. That's part of the thing mm-hmm. is you could find treasures in there. You have no idea. Yeah, and it's not like a flea market in the sense that this was actually in use stuff that wasn't just discarded or outdated. It's like this is some this belongs to somebody. Right. <laughs> this is using like it. quality currently in use stuff, especially if you yeah. think like oh, if you're traveling for business, you're going to have a lot of nice suits, right? Yeah. You're not always bringing your, your beach wear. Sometimes you're bringing nice, expensive stuff. <laughs> they they have the largest laundry facility in all of Alabama. They wash <laughs> about 70,000 pieces of clothing per month. Wow. The Sun kind of updated a little bit. He launched an online store. So now they don't have, you don't have to go in person. You can go and like browse what they have and they'll ship it to you. And even with all their customers and all the circulation that they do, only about a third of the items that they bring in are actually sold. Another <laughs> third goes to charity. 
They have kind of some standard categories where, like, all the wheelchairs they get go to a certain veterans organization. All the strollers go to pregnancy centers. Anything that they don't feel like they can sell goes to homeless shelters. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, there is an element of, you know, (laughs) some (laughs) niceness. I mean, it's not all nice. Like, there are definitely... No, no. Because the thing is, they often find inside of these suitcases identifying information. Like, names and addresses. Where, of course, you're like, well, why didn't the airline company reach out to that person? But then by the time it gets to unclaimed baggage, they basically said, no, we're not going to make any effort to find the person who owns this. They said uh, the guy was directly quoted as saying, look, we're a retailer. We aren't set up to find your Aunt Jane's blue Samsonite. You can buy it back from us. And some people some people have. They said, actually, people who have heard of this business will sometimes go out there specifically to get expensive things that they want back. There was a guy who lost a suitcase coming back from Europe and he came to Alabama and looked and he found his custom tailored lavender suit. Uh, Okay, yeah, that's worth tracking down. Yeah, and it was definitely his, (laughs) but he had to buy it back. And, you know, I I don't know if they really gouged him on the price or if it was still a good deal to get his suit back. Yeah, I mean, uh, do they have some kind of, like, discount program where if you can prove personally identifiable information associated with your belongings that somebody else bought from someone who really didn't even have ownership over it in the first place, (laughs) a.k.a. the airlines, like, do you get a bring-it-back-home kind of discount? Like, oh, because you are the owner? I mean, this kind of just... No, there really isn't. I'm sorry to tell you. They they have because they because, you know, famous people travel and lose luggage, too. They had one story where a famous baseball player for the Yankees, a guy named Whitey Ford, lost his piece of luggage. And inside it was a team jacket that only the players had. And it had his name kind of embroidered in it. So, I mean, there was absolutely no question. It was clearly the jacket of this famous guy. And the guy who ran the business was like, no, you can buy it back at our jacket price. Like, we're not (laughs) we're not going to give it to you. But they do have a cool list of, like, really weird items that they've found over the years, uh, some of which blew my mind. So they found a marble tombstone with a name and a death date, like, in a suitcase. I'm not sure why you would travel with that. Uh, They Hmm. found a Gucci suitcase full of ancient Egyptian artifacts from 1500 B.C. That has to be illegal as heck. It probably was. And they don't, like, they acknowledge they're in in close touch with the FBI. And, like, anytime something that's clearly problematic comes through, they hand that straight over. They don't deal with that. They said they found drugs many times. They found big (laughs) suitcases full of money. They found stuff that they're like, well, get get it out of our warehouse. (laughs) Um, But then, on the other hand, they found this one is absolutely amazing and personal to me. They found the original four-foot-tall Huggle puppet from the 1986 film Labyrinth. Like, the puppet. Yeah. Somebody who had worked on the film was apparently traveling with it and lost their suitcase. And they found... (gasps) I mean, it's crazy. And they have a picture of it. Because, of course, they don't sell that. They put it up on display in their store as, like, oh, look at the cool thing you might find if you dig through our (laughs) rack. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah, and they actually, in that case, they actually paid a puppeteer specialist to restore it and kind of put in some of the history of it on a little placard and all sorts of stuff. But then Well, they now found- I can better understand why a million people are visiting this place every year. It's like a yeah. museum of ill-begotten stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, they also, they found an F-16 guidance system belonging to the U.S. Navy. I think they had to give that back. Uh, it's probably classified. Uh, they found a Nikon F camera from NASA's space shuttle program. Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, they found a mysterious sealed box that was labeled call CDC immediately, which they did. Uh. Um, <laughs> no, they, they never got any word on what was inside that, but they just immediately sent it off. They found a, a live rattlesnake in a duffel bag. Nope. Uh, other animals, they had vacuum-packed frogs, a foul-smelling bear hide packed in salt. They had a rare uh. violin made by a student of Stradivarius, and 
they had a xylophone from Neil Diamond's 2008 world tour. (laughs) And I'm not like, I mean, some of this stuff, you have to imagine they did a little bit of research to figure out whose it is. Yeah. I mean, if you open up a suitcase and it has a xylophone, okay, cool. But how do you identify (laughs) that it's from a Neil Diamond tour unless you're like, no, I want to know who this is. You put in the effort to find who it belongs to. And then you say, no, I'm not going to give it back. (laughs) Wow. But yeah, like I said, they have an online store now. So you can go and like see some of their weirder, stranger items online. They had some really cool photos. There's a whole wall of headphones because, of course, Uh. other than just traveling with them, they buy things that are left on planes. So Uh, lots of cell phone mm -hmm. chargers. What's the name of this museum business organization again? The business is just called Unclaimed Baggage. Uh, I don't know what the website is, but I imagine if you search it up, you can find it. It seems like, on the one hand, I don't want to support that kind of business. (laughs) Like you said, it feels dirty. But at the same time, it's like, oh, man, I want to see what they have. Like, there's definitely a kind of voyeuristic, what did they find in all these suitcases? Yeah, totally. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we're looking forward to seeing everyone back in the new year. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.